Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today's guest is author and poet Destiny O. Birdsong, whose most recent book, Nobody's Magic, is a triptych novel that centers around the lives of three Black women with albinism in Shreveport, Louisiana. We talk today about the pressures of representation, the many manifestations of grief, and Destiny's own ever-evolving relationship with her albinism. The Stacks Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and we will be discussing the book on the podcast on March 30th with Imani Perry. If you like The Stacks and want more of it, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join The Stacks Pack. You'll get perks like bonus episodes, virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shout outs on the show. Speaking of, here are some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Gun Eva Nace, Damian Roberts, Amanda Wingham, Catherine Berland, Amy C., Carrie Ann Flavin, Adriana Avila, Michelle Noviel Ham, Julia Lupton, and Patrick Lira Lanier. Thank you all for joining and putting your money behind the work of this show. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, please join the Stacks Pack and know that there would be no The Stacks without The Stacks Pack. Head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join. Now it's time for my conversation with Destiny O. Birdsong. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I'm talking with Destiny O'Birdsong, the author of Nobody's Magic. Destiny, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to you. I have to admit, I have never read a book that is a triptych novel before. So I think we should sort of start with like 30 seconds or so. Tell us about the book. And then I have a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of questions for you about the characters and everything inside. So why don't you give us sort of a bigger rundown overall picture? Sure. So Nobody's Magic is a triptych novel. It's told in three parts. um, And each of the parts is devoted to a Black woman with albinism who lives in the South, specifically either lives in or has connections to my hometown, which is Shreveport, Louisiana. And I think the sort of overarching theme of the book is really about endings and beginnings. Mm. You know, in in each of the stories, the women have these endings of sorts, right? So for Suzette, it's the end of her childhood. For Maple, it's the end of her mother's life. For Agnes, it's the end of a dream um, that she, I think even she has some trouble kind of 
articulating or yeah. <laughs> deciphering for itself. <laughs> and so each of them kind of has to pick up at that point and figure out how they want to live the rest of their lives, you know, um, who they want to be, who do they want to be with. Um, so I think, yeah, I think if I had to sum it up, I think that's, that's, that was good. The gist of it. That was very good. Okay. I want to talk about a triptych novel first before I talk about actually what's in the book. I've never heard of that mm-hmm. phrase before, I don't think. And I am interested to know how it's different to you than a collection of short stories or than a collection of novellas or interconnected mm-hmm. novellas or short stories. Yeah. So I think, you know, you're right. I feel like my first triptych novel that I read would probably be Tayari Jones's Leaving Atlanta. Right. Oh, which is about yeah, the, I read that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that a triptych novel? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are three stories. <laughs> um, I think the difference between hers and mine is that the stories are interconnected. So the characters know each other. Right. Um, and in my case, the characters don't. And I think for me, what makes it a, a triptych as opposed to like a collection of novellas or a collection of, of um, long short stories is that I think their shared subjectivity for me was really important, right? Like there's not a lot of representation of characters with albinism in literature right now. When they do appear, you know, the representation is sometimes a little narrow, sometimes it's problematic depending on, you know, who you're reading and, you know, and and how the characters interact with some of the main characters. But for these women, I wanted to offer like a range of subjectivities, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel like it was really necessary for them to interact with each other. One of the great myths about like people with albinism that I've encountered so many times in my life is that we all know each other (laughs) and that we're all part of this sort of family of people who look alike. Um, It's deeply problematic. That's so (laughs) weird too. Why are are people so weird is like the real question. I, the little kid in me just really wishes that, it, well, I, I feel like there's more of this happening right now. But when I was growing up, I think people were just really overwhelmed by difference. And they're sure. really overwhelmed by someone who did not fit into a neat category right. of people that they'd previously encountered. So it's like they try to sort of put, they tried, they would try to put me very quickly in, into some category. It's like, oh, well, I know another person who looks like you. You two must be connected. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So it was important for me, for the women to have their own narratives that weren't sort of bogged down by that stuff. And there are references, you know, they do sort of, they're like yeah. these little references to each other throughout the book. Um, I, the, the one you know, where Mrs. Hamilton calls Maple Agnes. I, mm-hmm. As soon as the next story started, I was like, who is this Agnes and how is she connected? Like, I loved the little <laughs> moment of like, why did she say Agnes? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it is. A, I mean, it's a small city. So, you know, the, right. there there are some moments where they, they're sort of running into people who who know yeah, you know, the other main characters. So um, I thought that was I thought that was a really cool way to connect them. But I, I really just feel like their shared subjectivity. Um, I wanted it to end there because I wanted them to be three drastically different people. And I wanted their narratives to be shaped by who they were individually as as Black women with albinism, but also as these like, you know, hopefully really interesting, <laughs> definitely super complicated women. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. 
I have a lot of questions for you. And I think I want to start here because this is the thing that I am the least interested in, but I think that people will probably be the most interested in and are probably the most boring questions for you. So forgive me for being boring. But I want to start with albinism because you have you are a person with albinism and mm-hmm. as are the three characters in the book. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. like how much responsibility you felt or feel in telling these stories because so few people, as you sort of mentioned, know people with albinism. And so like there's this representation of like destiny, you must carry the the weight of our people on your shoulders. And like in your acknowledgments, I'm just going to read what you said because I'm the person who loves to read acknowledgments and gets to quote them in interviews like a real like asshole. This is real pretentious. But you say um, you're thanking God is who you thank first. And you say, thank you for this journey, which has helped me better understand myself and women like me in ways I didn't know I was not understanding. So I guess the first part of the question is like, what's the responsibility you feel? And then the second part of the question, which is what I'm more interested in, is what were you not understanding that you've come to understand? Mm. That's a great question. Um, also, I am totally the person who flips to the acknowledgements. I want to know who you know. <laughs> Me too. I love like, it. Like, yeah. yeah I like I to save it for know. the end. I'm like, as soon as I finish the book, mm-hmm. I'm like, get so excited to read the acknowledgements. I want to know who helped you. I want to know who inspired you. Yeah. I want to know who you love most in your life, especially with the debut, mm-hmm. because I feel like you thank more people. I feel like when people get to their like sixth book, it's like, thank you to mm-hmm. my mailman. And I'm like, okay, your mom's probably mad at you, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do get shorter. I mean, this is my second book. So. Your second book, and but your first novel. Yeah. Because your first yeah, book was yeah. poems. Yeah, yeah. And the acknowledgments are way shorter. <laughs> I think there's like four or five pages in the poetry collection. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not doing that this time. I do feel like they get progressively shorter. Um, but, you know, so there, the sense of responsibility. So there's another part in the acknowledgments where I talk a little bit about this, about the fact that like, Uh, You know, in spite of the fact that I deeply understood that this was important work, like I knew that I couldn't tell every story. Like I can't like that. Like that's just not possible. Albinism happens in every racial category in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And even if I were to sort of just like try to stick to my own little corner of like black women living in the South, (laughs) I I still can't. can't Like, yeah, I still can't tell the whole story. Um, But what I did feel responsible for doing was creating characters, like I said, who are complex and who I hope are interesting, whose lives are certainly impacted by their condition, but it's not limited to that. Because mm. that's the thing that often disappointed me when I saw characters with albinism in literature. It's like their condition was like first and foremost. Right. And like that dictated what the narrator had to say about them. It dictated what the what the character said to them, how the characters treated them. And yes, like that is a part of, of these triptychs, but it's not the only thing there. So what I wanted, what what I felt responsible for offering was nuance. Mm. Um, I also, you know, because people are really, (laughs) people's reactions to Agnes um, are interesting. I, you know, Agnes isn't a very likable person. Sure. And I didn't like her when I was writing her, but she interested me. And so I kept going and I'm glad that she's not perfect mm. um, because that kind of cultural work, I mean, it certainly has happened in, in Black American literature, like, you know, since the narratives of enslaved people, right? That you had to sort of do this work of humanizing yourself to right. your reader. Like, yes, right. I'm I'm a person, I'm good. You know, I'm reliable, I'm responsible, I'm God-fearing. I think that's important work, but I didn't want to have to sacrifice nuance for that. 
Right. So I felt, yeah. And so that became a responsibility. I can't say I started off that way because, again, I didn't like Agnes either. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this character who keeps talking to me. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that, that sort of became a part of what I wanted to achieve. And in terms of my own not understanding, it was really important for me to also portray characters who were like desirable and who mm. other characters desired, who were sexual, who thought about their own beauty and sort of like expressed it in different ways, but yeah. also were sort of discovering their own beauty in the process in, in a couple of the narratives. And I think that is one of the things that I'm still working to understand is like, where does my beauty fit into the larger conversations about beauty about like mm. physical beauty I don't think that's the only important thing you know I, I like I, I don't want to sort of like make it seem like it's really important for me to be seen as beautiful but it's important for me to understand my own beauty and so that's sure. what I wasn't yeah that's what I wasn't always understanding and I'm still working to understand if I'm being honest and so that that's the thing that comes to mind when when I think of the the first part of my acknowledgments is just sort of coming into a better understanding of my own like aesthetic wholeness right right yeah right. I love that so much thank you um so this is sort of more about just like black writing about black women generally because <laughs> what I fucking loved about this book was you captured dialogue and conversation and like the way that it feels to be Black and talking. I feel like so, I know that sounds like very basic, but I read so many books and not just books by Black authors, but just in general, like dialogue seems to be very hard and people don't always get it and it doesn't always feel natural. And like from the jump, your dialogue was just like, I was like, I get it. I know where I am. I know who these people are. So I'm wondering how you approach writing dialogue and if it's something that's easy for you or if that's like one of the harder parts for you in actually writing your work. Mm. Well, I think dialogue comes easy for me, but it's it's an earned easiness. So uh, talking is my love language. Um, <laughs> me too. I, <laughs> yes, I'm a marathon talker. Um, one of my close friends and I, used to talk. She lived in upstate New York for a long time and it was like really isolating. And like one day we had this eight hour phone conversation and I have no memory of, of the length of the conversation. I remember the conversation was really good. I had no idea it lasted that long because mm. that's just, yeah, that's my thing. I, you know, I was in heaven <laughs> talking to my buddy. So I think that that that's been a kind of training for me is mm. sort of like being in conversation with people I love and sort of like always being in the presence of the kind of rhythm of like black language and at all levels, right? Because my friends grew up all over the um, country and in some places, in some cases, in different parts of the world. And so just the rhythm of language, I think I'm I'm steeped in it, you know, because I'm surrounded by people whose love language is also talking. So um, dialogue to me comes comes fairly easy, but I think it's still a thing that I pay great attention to because like you, I feel like I'm kind of a snob with it. Like, like if I read your dialogue and it doesn't feel authentic, I, I it's a turnoff for me as yeah. a reader for a little yeah. bit. So I do, yeah, I'm very careful with it. I, I, I read it over and over again. Sometimes I read it aloud. It's really important for me to sort of capture a rhythm that my ear is accustomed to, but also that feels natural on the page, like in the text. 
And so. are you thinking about your characters' voices differently? Like, are you imagining them like when you're writing? I don't write, so I never really understand how people write. I still don't, even though I've been talking to writers for four years. I just, I don't get how you guys do this. But are you thinking, like, are you hearing Suzette's voice and it sounds a certain way in your head and you're just writing it out? Or like, I, I don't know what the other option would be, but is, I, I just, I don't, how does it, how do you know that like Donnie sounds right or Agnes sounds right? Yeah, well, I actually don't know how it's done either, to be honest with you. Like, I know how I do it. <laughs> um, and one of the ways I do it, which is probably really kooky and kind of weird, is I think about my characters as real people. Sure. You know, and and they are often the amalgamation of people I've known, you know, mm-hmm. like like not in whole, but sort of like 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 when I visualize Donnie, I, I can see what he looks like, but I also sort of know his backstory mm-hmm. and I know the the places he's lived in and worked in. And so that's going to influence how he says a thing. Um, I also think he's sort of like smart in these really like unexpected ways. And so like that also influences his language. So for me, I think it's some character building, but the characters do talk to me. Yeah, when I was writing Suzette's part of the triptych, I, I was trying to hear her tell the story, right? Mm. Like, how is Suzette going to tell the story? And, and the way she tells the story is influenced by her being an only child. It's influenced by her growing up around older um, Southern Black people. It's influenced by her, like, time on the internet. Um, and so I'm sort of thinking about those things as I'm crafting speech. Um, and as I'm and I, also as I'm crafting, like, the narrative. And so... Um, but I think it's easier when I when I think of the characters as like fully fleshed out people. Like I know what they right. look like, I know how they wear their hair, I know what their clothes are like. And so that for me kind of makes it a little easier to sort of, you know, determine like how Donnie's gonna sound or Suzette or Maple, who's like been to college but is right. also like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Love so. Maple. I, we're gonna talk about Maple in a second. <laughs> I should have started with this maybe, but like, how do the ideas for the stories come to you? Um, Because I feel like oftentimes, like when people write their first novel, it's a lot of themselves is in it, but you have these three very Mm -hmm. different women. So I'm going to make an assumption that you're probably in each of them in different ways. But like, how did you come up Mm -hmm. with the actual stories? Because they're so different from each other. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right that there's sort of a little piece of me in all of them. So the first story that came was Agnes's part of the novel. And it came because I, like Agnes was like working, was like grading high school exams. And it just came as a joke. Like I I told someone like, oh, you know, it would be, I wonder what would happen if someone just like, lost their shit in here and started like throwing things or like because it's a really austere and very quiet space like the, the the reading room um and so um I just wondered like you know what, what would happen if someone introduced some chaos right, right. <laughs> and um so they so they sometimes happen like that sort of like ideas sometimes I'll start off with a very clear um sense of what I want to write and and but I'll tell you it almost never goes the way I planned mm. so for instance for Suzette's triptych, I started off with the idea that I would have this character who had albinism but and who was capitalizing on these myths about people with albinism, like having special powers and like, you know, and but but she's a charlatan. Like she's using these, okay. these superstitions to like, you know, to like make money off people. Um, but somehow it just evolved into a really sort of sheltered woman who 
it who has sort of like benefited from these superstitions, but not in the ways that I had intended. Right. Yeah. So for me, sometimes it's just sort of an idea that's like born out of an interest in a specific topic. So like for Maple, her original story was was supposed to be about her just like getting laid. Like like she hasn't had sex in a long time and she's 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 going to figure out how to do it. Um, well, she's going to find someone to do it. She's going to she's going to get it done. Um, but it it was supposed to be sort of like a comedy of errors. Mm. Um, and I started writing the first I wrote the first scene of bottled water. And like then shortly after I was like cooking dinner and and like a very small voice said to me, oh, the mother's supposed to be dead. Mm. And I was like, what? But I I decided to sort of follow that impulse. And, and I was like, OK, well, the next time I sit down to write about Maple, I'm going to write as if the mother's dead. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I'm just going to go back to my original idea. Because in the story, it's also there's also going to be a mother who was like her daughter's best friend. And Got she's it. sort of like helping her along in the <laughs> in the quest. Got it. So, yeah, so they so they come as ideas that I'll play around with. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, that's OK. Um and but I'm also deeply aware that like my characters and the stories that I'm telling are, are sometimes just smarter than I am or smarter than my original plan. Mm-hmm. And so I'm totally <laughs> open to like letting them evolve. Right. I like I, I try not to put. Yeah. Like I try not to put too much pressure on what I had in mind, yeah. Um, which, yeah, which is a practice I'm much better at on the page than like in my life. <laughs> sure. Seems so. impossible in life. Let's be honest. Yeah. Do you yes. have a favorite of the three women or of the three stories? People ask this often and I feel like, well, I I, I genuinely do not have a favorite. But if I did, I'm like, I'm not going to tell you because I want you to read all of them. Okay. <laughs> but, I, you don't have to tell us, but I'm going to tell you which one was my favorite. Uh, yeah. I loved Maple's story so mm. much. I think for me... Um, And I've talked about this a lot on the show. I am obsessed with grief right now. I think a lot of people Mm. are living with it and maybe they don't know that that's what they're experiencing. I lost a parent about 10 years ago. And ever since then, I think about grief all the time, not in like a sad, depressing way, but just like it's something that I think about because I don't think we're taught about it. And what I Mm. loved about this story is how Maple was experiencing grief and people were talking to her about it. And she sort of was like unable to understand or hear a lot of what was being said to her about grief, which I just think is like one of the most realistic depictions of grief that I've ever read. And like you have these Mm -hmm. a few lines, like there's one line where I think someone says something like, you know, when someone dies unexpectedly or early, it's just like all of a sudden everything is set in stone, like with your relationship mm. with them, you know, and like mm-hmm. you can't go back and have that conversation. And then there's another line where someone says that that the, a person died before you were done loving them. Um, mm. Another moment that I just like was like, I get, I'm getting chills right now just talking about it. And so for me, not that I loved Maple more than any of the other women, but just I loved what you as the author were talking to us about and how you were talking about grief because you weren't like, oh, this person is sad and crying every day. Like, you know, Maple had all sorts of emotional reactions or non-reactions or behaviors that were like weird. And you're like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What are you doing? And so I'm wondering like sort of how you are thinking about grief, how you were thinking about Maple, you know, without spoiling anything, um, but just sort mm-hmm. of how you came to want to write about grief. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I think that (laughs) this may be a weird place to start, but I have long been like a crime TV junkie. Okay, same, Um, same, same. Great. (laughs) And the cases that often were the most perplexing for me were the ones where a detective decides to focus on a particular suspect because they they would say something like, oh, well, this person wasn't grieving properly. Mm. And I was just like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Right? That like the mm-hmm. grieving process is different for each of us. Like, um, and I grew up in a family where there were like a couple of years where like three or four people like passed away. Mm. And my mom's reaction to it I mean, in hindsight, it's heartbreaking to think about as a kid. I was just sort of bewildered and kind of confused and maybe a little scared. But like, I think that the culture she was raised in and, you know, by default, I was also raised in sort of treats grief as this thing that you sort of like move past. Right. And you should do it very quickly because to sit in it is dangerous and potentially is sort of like suggests a lack of faith. Right. Mm. That God Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. comfort you and that you will be okay, And that this was all a part of a divine plan. I think that she really struggled with that. And and the struggle is just sort of like it, it mapped itself out in some really interesting ways. And I think that those are the two things that really sort of brought me to an interest in grief. But like I've you know, I, I haven't yet lost like in my adult life, lost, you know, a close loved one, right? Mm. Like a parent or a spouse or a child. But I have grieved the, some losses, you know? Sometimes people leave your life and they're still living. Yeah. <laughs> but it's 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 done. Yeah. Mm. And there is no going back to that relationship. Or it's There's no having that conversation. So I've also been interested in that because I have had those losses in the yeah. past few years. And, and, and those two are grieving processes that people seem to have very sort of like, you know, very clear ideas about, you know, how one should right. move through them. And those ideas are often really off the mark, at least for me anyway. It's yeah. like, no, I don't, I, I don't know how to grieve that way. And actually it feels painful and violent to do that. And so I think all of those things for me are at play in, in Maple's story. So. Yeah, I think. I think a lot of people, I mean, just given the pandemic and everything, even if you didn't lose mm-hmm. someone to death, like I think a lot of people are grieving right now. And again, like don't really know or understand what they're feeling, like grieving mm-hmm. a way of life or like grieving mm-hmm. a future that they thought perhaps they might have. Mm-hmm. Like I know for me personally, I had um, I had twins in December 2019 and I had visioned all these things that our life our Mm. life was going to be and like they just haven't been those things and that's been really really hard because I'm also like a planner type person and at Mm -hmm. first I like could not figure out why I was so sad because I was like everyone I know is healthy we've not had coronavirus like all this stuff and then eventually Mm -hmm. I was like oh my god I'm grieving all these things that I thought that I would get to do and show my kids by now and like my family Mm -hmm. that I you know all of that stuff but the other thing I think that's really interesting that you said about sort of like having faith around grief is I think that Mm -hmm. religion sometimes really complicates how people grieve because there is, and not just religion, but just like sort of generally toxic positivity. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it happens for a reason or like, we're all Mm going to get through it and all this stuff. It's like, you know what? 
someone just died or like Mm. a million people are dying around me. Like, I don't actually need Mm -hmm. you to tell me things are going to get better. Like, this is pretty fucking bad and I just want to feel it. And it's not an indication Mm -hmm. about like the quality of human I am or the quality of divine spirit that God may or may not be like. I just find it also interesting. So I just, uh, I just loved Maple. I loved her story, and I, I loved what you did with it because I think in other hands it could have been a really a story that I hated. Like I think, I think handled differently, it, it could have just been yucky for me. Uh, I want to talk a little bit to you about the world of publishing because yeah. you've written this like what I would assume. Well, let me ask you. I guess let me start here. Did you receive any pushback about an audience or an interest level for a book about people with albinism and specifically Black women with albinism? Was there any like difficulty selling this book for you? So this is the first book I sold in the way it was sold, right? So sort of like the traditional way, like my poetry collection sold in a, in a slightly different way, Okay, like without an agent. So. Okay. I, I can't necessarily gauge, uh, I, I, in my opinion, it sold fairly quickly. I think oh, it good. went on submission at the end of July, the beginning of August of 2020. And it was sold by September, which I think wow. is, is, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it felt fast. I, I don't know if that's, you know, I think it sort of depends on um, one's experiences. But, you know, my agent really liked it and um, the editors who were interested in it liked it in different ways. Um, The editor who eventually bought it um, just really, you know, if she had qualms of any kind, like I never saw them like she really like loved the book. and, And the thing that made her stand out um, among the editors was that she loved she wanted the women to stay together mm. you know like so because some some had suggested like oh you know maybe we should break it up and you know do, do like short novels and so she loved the whole book mm. and seemed very confident that it would find its audiences so I didn't really get a lot of that I mean that of course you know I you know sure. as a writer you know there's, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff that happens behind the scenes that I am not privy to, and in some cases, I'm glad I'm not. But yeah, um, yeah but I, no one at my agency or the press like voiced any of those qualms. Everybody was excited about it and um, has has championed it. Like I, I think pretty heartily. Good. For lack of a better word. <laughs> I love that because I think it's a really good book. But I feel like I've heard so many Thank stories you. of people talking about how like, oh, it was hard to sell or whatever because it's like a niche topic or like. And also, I think the women not not that I think that it's niche, but like, you know how publishing is. You hear these stories of like, you know, I think Disha Filia mm-hmm. talked about how like nobody wanted to publish her book about black church women. I'm like, that's like not even mm-hmm. niche. That's just like a ton of people. Right. Um, but like that sort of like how. Right. You know, so like that's sort of how like black stories are are handled is like, oh, this is not universal or whatever. Not that anything's universal, et cetera, et cetera. And I found your characters to be so unapologetically black and southern and like so specific in a way that I just like ate up. And so I was wondering if any of that like specificity, if people were who were in the process of making the book, if you got pushback, but it sounds like you didn't. And so that it makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. Would you talk a little bit about 
Shreveport as a character or as like sort of this fourth woman in your in your stories because I definitely <laughs> felt like Shreveport was there maybe not a woman maybe just a place is probably I don't need to genderize a place <laughs> no I think that I actually didn't think about the places like it's like being gender I like the, I I'm okay with her being a woman okay. um, I think that um yeah so it's you know I I was lucky to grow up there, um, which is not something that was clear to me as a kid. Okay. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're bored. You're like, oh my gosh, I want to go to Six Flags anywhere but here. Right, um, right, right. But it's an interesting place because it really sits at this like crossroads of the South, right? So it's like really close to Texas. So it you know there's like southwestern influence. And it is also, you know, a city in Louisiana, which has its own very distinct Southern culture that's right. like French and Spanish influenced and yeah, and um, French Canadian influenced. And so um, it has some of that. And then it's also a city in the deep South, you know, um, but it is also a city that is close to the Mid-South. Like, I, I want to say that Shreveport might be slightly closer to Memphis than it is to New Orleans. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So like, so it's, it really was a confluence of cultures, you know, and I, I don't think I, I appreciated that as a kid, but as an adult, putting these women in that place, like worked really well. And, it, and you know, I wish I could take credit for it, but I, mm-hmm. it was really just a matter of like, where will they be safe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as representations of Black women with albinism, right? Like, so, you know, and that's a place filled with people I love. And for them, it's a place filled with people who love them. Mm. And so, like, it felt like the right thing to do. But in the process of writing the book, the city sort of lent itself into the stories and in some really profound ways because of the kind of city it is. Yeah, I love it. Um, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we're back. It's time to talk process. My This is my favorite section of these interviews. How do you like to write? Where are you? Is there music? Are there snacks and beverages? How often? rituals, kind of set the scene for your writing? Oh, and if it's different when you're writing poetry versus writing prose? Um, No, it's not. You know, I was working on this book while also finishing up edits for negotiations, which is the poetry collection. And often what I do is just sort of like trade off. So it's like um, if I have like a three hour block of writing. So I'll, I'll say up front that like I typically don't write for more than a few hours a day because at some point, (laughs) um, I think it was a philosophy student, a philosophy grad student that um, I was going to school with said that after hour four, the quality of the work goes Mm -hmm. down. So you may have the energy to produce the work, but after Mm -hmm. hour four, like that intense work that's happening in your brain just starts to diminish. And and so you're not getting you, you're getting pages, but you're not getting quality pages. And um, I found that to be true. I I feel like it was truer after she said it because it gave me permission <laughs> to do less. <laughs> um, but I often sort of break it up. Like I might spend an hour working on a poem and then an hour writing prose and then sometimes an hour like doing research or just sort of like just doing something else that's writing related, but not necessarily like, yeah. you know, fingers to keyboard. So yeah, I, I can do the same, you know, I can, in one sitting, I can write in, in several genres, but I often, I am not a coffee shop writer. And that was such a thing in grad school. People would sort of go and hang out. I cannot do that. I have to be, um, it has to be complete quiet. I often write late at night. I'm a night owl. I've been that way since I was a kid uh, because it's just, I feel very, like it's it's like I'm the only person awake. I know that's not true, but it's sort of I just feel <laughs> right. Like I feel like I feel like I'm 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 getting the jump on something while everyone is sleeping. So right. um, usually very late at night at home, it's very quiet. I have to be very warm, so I I will have like blankets on my mm. and yeah, I might have blankets over my legs. I have these booties that are what, rice filled, and I can put them in the microwave. I have a neck thing like that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. Um, and then maybe some tea or something or water. I'm not usually like eating or anything. I just, I'm not a person who does well with distractions. Got it. So yeah, it really just has to be me in a quiet and very warm place with with my laptop 
Um, and sometimes I don't, I don't write things out by hand anymore, but sometimes if I feel like I need to, um, or with my phone, like I, I do great. I, I've, I've written a few poems in my notes app. Hmm. It's great. <laughs> I, I um, love my notes app. That's how mm-hmm. I do my reading. That's where I take notes for this show. It's like quickly mm-hmm. as I'm reading, cause I hate to get distracted from the moment, but I often need to like jot down a line or like whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking tea, what kind of tea are you drinking? Um, usually it's something caffeine free. I, my body does not work well with caffeine. It feels like I'm on like, I mean, I, I don't know what it feels like from experience, but I imagine it's like <laughs> what my body might feel like, like on amphetamines or something. Okay. It's like I'm jittery and I can't really focus, but I also can't sleep. It, it's yeah, it's a mess. So oh, no. usually something, yeah, <laughs> something decaf. Um, I don't think this tea is decaffeinated, but I have fallen in love with Thai tea. Oh, no, that has caffeine for sure. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Um, I, I don't drink that at night, but I have kind of fallen in love with it. Um, during the day and and I have because I'm dairy and um, lactose sensitive so oh. I have like um, lactose free sweetened condensed milk got it because I'm a sugar I am a sugar holic yes. uh, now you're speaking yeah. my language we were struggling because all I like <laughs> is caffeine and milk and so I was starting to get a little nervous that we weren't going to be able to bond but sugar I'm here for sugar <laughs> <laughs> yes, that I think that I mean the tea itself is great. It has this really this real yeah. like, full bodied flavor, and I do love that. But it, it's the sweet and condensed milk for me. I wouldn't drink it if I couldn't put it in. Yeah, I'm with <laughs> sometimes you. I'll sub it out. Yeah, sometimes I'll sub it out with like oat milk and um and like honey or something mm-hmm. like that. Like if I don't want it as sweet, sometimes I'll do that, and and that works. But yeah, it's it's the sugar for me, really. <laughs> I love that this podcast has really just turned into me finding out what everyone else is eating and drinking and like taking notes about that. It's like all a cover for my curiosity about what everyone else consumes. (laughs) No, it's good. You know, sometimes it's good. I get good snack ideas from people. So I'm here for it. Same. I am. I love a snack idea. Um, How Mm -hmm. do you sort of or how are you sort of preserving and or tapping into your creativity these days? I used to write pretty consistently, maybe like five or six days a week. Um, And part of that was because I was finishing things. Like I was finishing this book, I was finishing negotiations. I haven't been doing that as much lately, but I'm also wondering if it's, I'm wondering if I should start again. I am my happiest when I'm writing or when I'm working on something. Um, But I also don't like the idea of pushing out books that don't feel ready. Right. Um, so yeah, so I feel like I've been trying to pace myself, but I haven't, I haven't been writing as much and I, I miss it. I miss that time with my brain Mm. and, you know, with my ideas, but what I have been doing, and it actually feels therapeutic because it feels like very low stakes is I've been doing like these like small arts and crafts projects. So yeah. So my friend and I went thrifting a couple of weekends ago and I bought like a shelf. So I've been like, I, I'm not like super handy. Like I can't take it apart and put it back together again, but I can fix the nicks on it okay. and put some nice, you know, put some nice contact paper in it or something, you know, yeah. like, so, it, so it's, yeah, it's me like sprucing up little things around the house, framing stuff that I like that maybe I've had for a while. Yeah, that, that feels like a way for me to be creative, but it doesn't feel like I'm under the pressure to do things. And I do feel like that's important, yeah. right? So yeah. I, I don't, yeah, yeah. It's important for me to make stuff that's just for me. 
you know, that I, that I just want to see on the wall or, or, you know, next to my bed or whatever. I love the idea of that. And also it helps me create a space that feels like my own, that I love. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much a homebody and my home space is really important. You know, I, I get anxious when it's like, when, you know, things are like cluttered or like right. it's not clean because um, it really is conducive to my creativity when I feel like it's it's clean. It's it feels safe. It, it You know, there are things around me that I like and that bring me joy. And um, so that's been a way lately that I've been kind of preserving it and, and just trying not to put a lot of pressure on on production, because I do feel like. You know, I feel like the the power of my first two books in part lies in the fact that like nobody was looking for them. Right. <laughs> and nobody was asking for them. Yeah. So I could just do what I wanted. I didn't feel like I had to write toward an audience or anything. Right. I just, you know, it's just me doing my thing. And so I like to preserve that. I would like to preserve that energy yeah. for the next project. So I do try to sort of make sure I'm not trying to sort of rush to a finish line. Yeah, anything. that makes so much sense. I think people forget that like, creative people people who create things for work whether you're an author or a podcaster or whatever that usually those kind of people are creative generally by nature and so Mm -hmm. and so finding ways to be creative that aren't that isn't work I think is really important for creatives just like in my experience and the people that I know and stuff Um, but I don't think people always I don't think other creatives always understand that about themselves like they think oh I'm a writer so I write but like I'm a podcaster, but I also like to cook a lot. And that feels really nice. Like in a, like being mm-hmm. creative in the kitchen, you know, um, are mm-hmm. you, when's your birthday? I want to know what your sign is. Um, I'm a Capricorn oh. and my birthday is December 31st. Oh, um, last yeah. day of the year. Yeah, baby. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was thinking about that when we were talking about like how I like to write. Cause I was born at, 1028 at night. Wow. So my friends always sort of joke like, oh yeah, like that's why you, <laughs> that's your time of day. <laughs> that's when you do your thing. That's when you're like ready, um, ready to go. Yes. I love yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. I didn't ask you this before, but I am sort of curious because you brought up audience. Did you have an audience in mind when you were writing Nobody's Magic? So I have a friend who um, repeated a question that someone asked her in a workshop. And and the question is, who are you loving when you write? Mm. And for me, the answer is always Black women. But I'm also, um, particularly with a book like this, like I'm also deeply interested in like introducing people to subjectivities that, that they aren't familiar with, mm. right? So like, so I mean, so yeah, I feel like my audience is pretty broad, but when I when I'm thinking about the impact of my work, I am asking myself, how does this work speak to Black women? Like, how does it speak about the experience of being a Black woman? Like, what does it add to the conversation? Mm. Um, So, so yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. I like that framing of who are you loving? Okay, this is very important. You have a PhD, so this record or this answer will go on your permanent record. Um, what's a <laughs> word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Sometimes it's like really simple words because I'm so used to like autocorrect. Mm. Um, 
Sometimes committee gets me like oh. too many M's, too many, how many T's? How many E's? <laughs> that also, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that also kind of tripped me up when I, because I live in Tennessee. And so for a while that was kind of like, but now I know it's like two N's, two S's, two E's. Like, I, yeah, I, 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 I have a mnemonic device for it now. Got it. But um, usually words like that, when they're sort of like an unspecified or sort of unpronounced number of yeah. letters that are the same. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. That's how I, the, the multiples mm-hmm. always get me. But recently someone said occasionally, and now I I refuse to look it up because I want to try to spell it correctly, but I know that I cannot. And so it's just sort of been sitting on the front of my brain occasionally. I'm like, it, there's multiples somewhere, but not everywhere, I think. I don't know. Um, yeah, I can't remember how many S's are in it now that you brought it up. Yeah, it's a hard one. Oh. That's a really hard <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Your book's been out in the world for like a month, I think, like mm-hmm. today, actually, the day we're recording. Mm-hmm. Um Who's the coolest person to express interest in your book? Or who's the coolest person you've heard from about your book? Tando Hopa, who's a South African um, Black woman with albinism, who's like a model and a human rights advocate, a lawyer. She does all the things. Um, but she reached out and, and was like, you know, I'm really excited about your book and I really appreciate the ways. I think the thing that that really, I mean, of course, I'm happy that she's excited about it. But I think the thing that really struck me was that she said something to the effect of the way that this book is being presented to the world feels right. Mm. Right. So it's not being presented as sort of like a gimmicky thing. I mean, that's not what she said, but like, that's what it made me yeah. think about is that, oh, you know, like the way that my press and the publicity team has handled the rollout of this book feels authentic to other Black women with albinism. Mm. And so that, I think that was the part of her message that just like, I was like, it made me emotional. (laughs) And and they gave you just like truly, or maybe you helped them create the most beautiful cover. I mean, the book is just so beautifully packaged. Do you love the cover? Yeah. Don't you think it's beautiful? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was speechless when I first saw it. Because one of the things I was concerned about when we were talking about the cover was that, you know, if there was going to be a person on the cover, that her body was not sort of exoticized in the ways that some representations, some visual representations of people with albinism are. Mm. I wanted her to be beautiful. I wanted her to look comfortable in her skin. I wanted, you know, and and yeah, there were some specific things I wanted. I wanted her to have earrings. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, give her big hair. And I think that the cover just nails all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, like it it does all of the things that I wanted it to do. And it's also a really beautiful cover that people really respond well to. So yeah. um, I do love it. But I I yeah, but it but it, it feels it still feels a little surreal to look at it because it's so beautiful. I'm like, whose book is this? <laughs> it really this is. My is. Book? Like- it's so gorgeous. It really, really yeah. is. Um, I just have a few quick questions for you. One is that for people who love nobody's magic, what are other books that you might recommend to them that are in conversation in some way with your work? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the books that I've read recently that I love, I mean, of course, I love The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Mm. I really, often when people talk to me about 
sex scenes, I often think back to Sula. I think mm. to Toni Morrison Sula, which I know everybody's read, but um, I love that. I love the sex scenes between Sula and Ajax. Love yeah. them. <laughs> um, I think around the time I started thinking about this book, I was reading the short story collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. It's mm. Leslie Nanika Arima, I think. And I loved that book. I loved, um, there was one short story where one of the characters was a little girl and she was so, <laughs> I think like someone had dared her to like check to see if one of her classmates was like actually wearing a bra. Cause you know, like there was like rumors that like she wasn't as fully developed as she was telling people. Right. Um, and I often think of her when I think of like Maple, who's mm. just sort of irreverent and, you know, um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I definitely mentioned Terry Jones earlier. I absolutely love, I know many people love um, An American Marriage, but I loved Silver Sparrow, Mm. um, which is also a book that sort of like it toggles back and forth between narrators, Um, but they're sisters and they eventually meet each other. And so, yeah, I'll just, just, you know, it's interesting because when I finish a, a book, oftentimes I find that there are like remnants of books I've read that I wasn't even thinking about when Mm. I wrote, when I was writing, you know, it's, you find those little kernels and you're like, oh, you know what that reminds me of? And it's like, (laughs) oh, wow. Like I did read that. I did love that. Um, It did speak to me in some way. So um, yeah, super random. Yeah. I'm sure there's a laundry list of books. Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) Made this one possible. I definitely thought of church ladies a lot while I was reading your book, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you hope that folks will keep in mind as they read your book? Um, the the black experience is vast. Mm. It is as nuanced as like the individuals who are living it, mm-hmm. right? That like it can't be contained in one description or like, you know, and it makes me think of the Lucille Clifton epigraph, epigraph that like, um, um, about like sort of telling the story with one thin tongue, that there are just so many ways of existing in the world as a black person. And these are a few of them. They aren't the only ones, but I just hope it sort of widens the scope a little bit. Yeah. Um, Okay. Here's my last one. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Goodness. I mean, so I think the ancestors are, like, with me all the time. So I think that, like, I feel like the people in my family that I lost are, like, always here. And, like, they are um, sentient, perhaps, in ways that, like, you know, we are not privy to. So, like, maybe they have already read the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, But I, I, I do think of, like, my grandmother and my aunt. Um, my Aunt Mary, who passed away when I was, I think, maybe like nine or ten. But goodness, somebody who I don't know. I'm going to go with Harriet Jacobs. Mm. <laughs> because I feel like it, this is particularly true for negotiations. But I feel like when I'm thinking about my literary ancestry, for me, it really starts with her. Right. It really starts with the narrative of her, like... Um, sexual abuse and her her um, real determination to escape and like PTSD, you know, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I, I presume didn't have a name in her time, but like right. all of the parts of her narrative like speak to my lived experience. Mm-hmm. And 
sort of like, yeah. And I'm, I am, I hope I am doing it justice, but I feel like I'm writing in a tradition that she started in many ways. I love that. That's a great place to wrap up today. Um, Everyone at home, go out and get Nobody's Magic by Destiny O. Birdsong. You can get it wherever you get your books. Um, You can, it has an audio book. It has a physical book. You can get it from your library. You should do it with your book club. If you live in my neighborhood, you might find a bonus copy in my little free library. You know, there's, it's everywhere. It's out there. Um, Destiny, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right. That does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Destiny for being my guest. Thank you also to Cameron and Nessa for helping to make this interview possible. Remember, the Stats Book Club pick for March is A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, March 30th with Imani Perry. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. And please make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, the Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.